Recently, I was considering at my age, uh, looking back over my years, uh, some of the uh, regrets, some of the uh, wanderings, some of the waywardness in my faith, uh, much of the regrets that I have around how I've harmed myself and harmed others. And and I've done that as, as kind of an incongruence. I've been incongruent in my faith. I have been caught too often saying what I think I am and showing what I really am. And the contrast between my profession of faith in Christ and my lifestyle has at times been pretty glaring. And uh, that has is a source of sorrow for me. Uh, there's godly sorrow, as Paul describes in 2 Corinthians 7, uh, a sorrow that leads to repentance and renewal. But there's also a worldly sorrow, a sorrow that leads to death. And that worldly sorrow is tied not to repentance, not to renewal, not to a zeal for change, but to a toxic shame, a toxic guilt, where there just seems to be no way for you to get rid of it. Uh, No matter how much, how bad you feel about yourself, you just can't get rid of it. And it leaves you with a chronic sense of being less than, of being a failure, of being perhaps even disappointing to God himself. And so it's it's quite an ugly burden, uh, but it is not of God. Worldly sorrow is not of the Holy Spirit. Godly sorrow, however, is. Godly sorrow is what occurs when we are acting contrary to who we are in Christ. We're acting contrary to our new nature in Christ. We're in a habitual pattern in which we are still behaving and we're conducting our, our relationships as if we were still in Adam, even though we are now professing to be in Christ. And the conflict between that, the conflict between your open profession of Christ and your actual lifestyle is a source of sorrow for you. It's a source of godly sorrow. And as I said before, it leads to renewal, it leads to repentance and a sense of um, uh, a, a deep sense of uh, the desire to change, uh, a reliance upon the Spirit to transform you. And that occurs only through sound teaching. Now, here's a principle I really want to encourage you to grasp today, and that is this that sound teaching grounded in the truth of the inspired text, is essential for sound living. Another way to say it is this. Sound theology is essential for a sound mind. Because it's out of a sound mind that a sound living occurs, right? So we have to be transformed before we can expect to live differently than we used to in Adam. So I want to offer you this consolation this morning, and that is this. If you have a backlog of regrets, if you have a backlog of shame and guilt around the contrast between your profession of Christ and how you've lived, 
and it's tormenting you. There's some real chronic torment there. I want you to understand that while you are morally responsible for your behavior as an adult, that there is a reason, there is a spiritual cause and effect at work. And that spiritual cause and effect is the lack of sound teaching within the church. And if you're part of a church, there's no guarantee, just because you're attending church on Sunday, that you're getting sound teaching. In fact, uh, it's tragic enough to say that it's very likely that you are not. Uh, The proliferation of false teaching and false Christianity within these last days is so extreme that it's, it's, if it wasn't so seriously tragic, it would be comical. I mean, I just clicked through some of the so supposed so-called Christian TV channels some days, and the the mockery, the comedy, the 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 utter ludicrousy of what's being taught and how it's being presented in this entertainment and inspiration model, uh, and these huge churches that have. Uh, huge budgets, mind-boggling, millions of dollars annual budgets. And uh, sometimes the tens or even hundreds of millions of dollars in annual budgets. And they have these huge buildings filled with sometimes Joel Osteen's up to 60,000 people in this arena that he calls a church. And it's a, it's a structure. It's a, a system. It's a thing that exists. It, you can't call it the church but it says it is a church. It's representing itself as a church. And what's coming out of the pulpit, what's coming out of the leadership of these kind of churches is something far from the truth. And if you scratch the surface, you'll discover that these people's lives, their personal lives are train wrecks. Now, is that a black and white statement? Of course not. I mean, God has his remnant. And even in some of the worst churches, there are going to be a sprinkling of godly people. They may be in sorrow, they may be confused, but God has his people. But nonetheless, we ought not embrace silliness from the pulpit, entertainment, inspiration, stand-up comedy. (laughs) Uh, We're not looking for self-help here. We're looking for the truth of the gospel. And where we find it, we find sound minds and consequently sound living. And where you don't, you don't. So the consolation I want to offer you today is this. I just want to begin by saying that it takes some time, it takes some discipline, and it takes a a little investment of effort to begin to develop and listen to and do your own work in Scripture and prayerfully study the Scripture, prayerfully learn to read your Bible, not just read your Bible, but learn to read it and read it well, and do it so prayerfully. Because I want to remind you that the Holy Spirit is the agent, change agent in your life. The Holy Spirit has dwelt and dwelt you. If you are in Christ, you have been sealed by the Holy Spirit for redemption. And that redemption is at work in you even now, as is measured not by church attendance, not by giving records, 
but by your image, your character being conformed into the image of Christ. So the real standard for spiritual growth in Christ is to determine how you are becoming like Christ. Are people noticing a new sense of calm about you, maybe a sense of gentleness, a kindness about you? Are you uh, somebody that they can depend on? Are they finding that they can talk with you and that your, your, your spouse and your children are more comfortable around you? Uh, is there a sense of peace that's coming in, into your relationships? Is there a godliness about your character that's forming? Well, that's all. if that's true, then you're getting sound teaching. If you're struggling with something less than that, if you're still struggling with the habitual patterns of thinking and expressing your feelings and your inability to form and maintain meaningful relationships, if you're still struggling with the many forms of addiction, then there's a good chance that that doesn't mean, now please hear me now, that doesn't mean that you're just a bad Christian. <laughs> there's a lot of people who think they're just bad Christians. No. I've heard people say that to me so many times. I've never, I've really never been a good Christian. Well, there's no such thing as a good Christian. Any more than there was a good rich young ruler or a good Pharisee. They thought they were. But this isn't about our own inherent goodness. This is about uh, becoming like Jesus. And so our our ranking ourselves based on our own goodness is absurd. Uh, it's, it's the righteousness of Christ that we want worked out in our life. So, But I understand what people mean when they say, I've not been a good Christian. What I want to say to that is that, yes, you're responsible. You, as an adult, you're responsible for your, uh, morally responsible for your actions. But the cause of that is whether or not you're receiving sound teaching. Now, let me just give you an example out of Titus chapter uh, 1. Chapter 1, verse 10 says this. Paul's concerned. In fact, let me start with verse 7. of Titus chapter 1. For the overseer, the elder, the teaching elder especially, must be beyond reproach, as God's steward, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, not somebody's look always picking to look for a fight, not fond of dishonest gain, but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, righteous, holy, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching so that he will be able to both to exhort in sound doctrine and to reprove those who contradict. For there are many rebellious men, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, who must be silenced, because they are upsetting whole families, teaching things they should not teach for the sake of dishonest gain. Let me just interject here. It's never not been the case that you have sound, good stewards of the word of God, the word of truth in Christ, 
And then you have these rebellious empty talkers who are interested only in advancing their own agenda. They're acting out of selfish ambition, and they upset whole families. How do they do that? By teaching things that they should not teach. And why did they do it? For the sake of dishonest gain. There is nothing more dangerous, more threatening to the gospel of Jesus Christ than professional preachers. Those who are pursuing the ministry, quote-unquote, as a profession. Those who have career goals in the ministry. Those who are choosing to take a church or not take a church or take a position within the church based on whether or not uh, they can get the best salary and the best benefits package. It's absurd. There's nothing in the New Testament that sets out your benefits package and your salary as a qualification for being an elder. You may be uh, an elder of a church or a pastor of a church, and you're receiving a six-figure salary and a equally six-figure large housing allowance and benefits package. But that isn't. There's no significance to that. There's no validation of your worth as a pastor. That's just somebody bought into your shtick is what it is. Now, a pastor teacher is a spiritual gift. And we turn it into an office, a professional office. And so many of these guys are not teaching anything that helps anyone. They can be charming. They can be charismatic. They can be, um, they can be entertaining, even ingratiating. But people walk away from them having not been fed. They may be chuckling and slapping each other on the back and thinking, wasn't that a great sermon? Wasn't that so funny when he said this or that? Or wasn't that, oh, I really liked his point about this, that, or the other thing about how we can reach our goals in life and, and, and God wants us to be fulfilled in ourselves. That's not preaching. That's not teaching that molds our character. And if there's anything that we need today, it is sound expository teaching for the simple reason that the Holy Spirit uses that. Do you realize that the Holy Spirit is not obligated to use anyone? Just because you open a Bible and begin talking does not mean the Holy Spirit's going to use you. The Holy Spirit's only going to respond and be a part of the accurate presentation of his inspired word. After all, he inspired it. He wrote it. It may have Paul's name on it. may have Peter's name on it. may have John's name on it. may have the name of Moses on it, or David in the Psalms, or, and so on, or the writing prophets. But it's the Holy Spirit who's the ultimate author of the inspired text. And he is not under obligation to use anything but the inspired text to minister to you, to build you up, to encourage you in Christ, to transform you, to renew your mind. And if there's anything we need today, it's a renewed mind, right? Because the simple fact is, where our mind is constantly being barraged with information, 
especially if we watch a fair amount of TV, we're constantly being told what the culture, what the politicians, what the entertainers all think and feel. And there's nothing in, in it that's going to lead you to a transformed life, especially into the image of Christ. But we're, we're under an onslaught of information on an ongoing basis. So as functional adults, we, we need to call time out and say, whoa, I need to be careful about what I'm exposing my brain to. I mean, if you watch newscasts, local, national, international, and you do so for too many hours in a day, you're going to walk away a little, little twisted, a little jaded. You're certainly going to be likely be ill-informed. I mean, there are whole television networks these days who lie to you. They know they're lying to you, and they're still lying to you. And it doesn't matter what side of the equation you fall on politically, left or right. It's, it's, it's not a political issue. It's not a partisan issue. It's a matter of truth versus falsehood, as defined by Scripture, not defined by some human standard. So it's truth that sets us free, right? It's truth that frees us. It's truth that liberates us from the, from the old enslavement to sin, the habitual behaviors that create guilt, shame, and actually destroy whole families, upsetting whole families, it says here. And Paul says these guys must be silenced. They must be stopped from having access to the church. For there are many rebellious men, he says, empty talkers. Churches are filled today with rebellious, empty talkers and deceivers. And they must be silenced, Paul says. How do we silence them? By speaking the truth. By refusing to participate with them. It's always astonishing to me if I turn on TBN or uh, some other uh, TCT or some other so-called Christian station, uh, they'll often show these guys speaking to huge audiences. The reason that false teachers exist is because people have itching ears and they want it. If we quit listening to them, if we keep quit attending their churches, if we keep quit buying their books... I heard Donnie Swigert the other day, Jimmy Swigert's little boy, who's now in charge of that ministry, um, on their network, Sun Something Network, shamelessly telling the crowd that in the in the stadium as well as those listening on T and watching on TV that they needed to go to the bookstore afterwards and buy a certain book by a certain preacher, and. And he was being sarcastic. He was saying, now, I don't even care if you read it, he said. I don't even care if you read it. You don't want to read it, don't read it. But you need to go buy this book. You need to support this ministry. And you need to go out, and if you buy this book, in fact, I'm going to make sure all the doors are locked in the building, he said. Now, he was being, he was joking, but he wasn't joking. He's got a certain power and a certain control over the consciences of these people that he's speaking to. And he's saying, to, and he was using it. 
He was manipulating these people. And so he was telling his ushers, make sure you lock all the doors and nobody gets out of here tonight unless they have a copy of this book in their hand. <laughs> he says, I'm only kidding a little bit. This is what's happening. And if we were to quit watching that guy, if we were to quit giving to these ministries, if we were to quit attending these churches, these guys would be silenced. Remember, they live off of donations. They build their huge mansion houses, these mansions they live in. Some of them even have private jets. And they 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 live like like celebrities movie stars <clears throat> and it's only because people support them so what's worse the charlatans who are poisoning your mind with their false teaching or the people who support them don't support these guys. Don't feel any need to tolerate them. Paul says here in Titus, we ought not support them. We must silence them. Why? Because they're upsetting whole families. How are they doing that? Again, they're by teaching things they should not teach for the sake of dishonest gain. He goes on in verse 12 of chapter 1 of Titus. One of themselves, a prophet of their own, said, quote, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. That's people from the Isle of Crete he was referring to here. Are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. That's, that's the um, character of these false teachers. Paul says in verse 13, this testimony is true. See, Paul was not willing to just be play nice. Listen, folks, you can't play nice with false teachers. They're not out to help you. They're not out to help you lead a better life now. They're not out to help you, inspire you to be an overcomer or to have a, a, a greater prosperity in your finances. They're, they're, out to, they're out to shear you. They're out to manipulate you. They're out to control you and get your money and your attention and to give them accolades. It's a form of religious evil that belongs absolutely to the world. has nothing to do with Christ, has nothing to do with the kingdom of God, has nothing to do with the realm of the Spirit, has everything to do with this worldly realm populated and energized by demonic forces. So Paul goes on to verse 13 and says, This testimony is true. For this reason, reprove them severely, so that they may be sound in the faith, not paying attention to Jewish myths and the commandments of men who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, he says, 
But to those who are defiled and unbelieving, see, these false teachers are not believers. They show by their behavior that they are not believers. Are they Christ-like? No. Do you sense the fruit of the Spirit in them? Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, goodness, meekness, temperance, faith, kindness. Do you see Christ's character in them? A character of humility, unconditional obedience to the will of God, a desire to be anonymous? No, they're full of selfish ambition, pride, We have to stop tolerating these guys, whether they're on TV or on the radio or in the pulpit of your own church. He says, but both their mind and their conscience are defiled. They profess to know God, but by their works they deny him, being detestable and disobedient, unfit for any good work. Think of that. Unfit for any good work. I'm going to be so... I, here, here's the deal. <laughs> I, I, only have this, I only have this zeal and this passion for this. Because as a pastoral counselor, I have seen the train wreck of people's lives. Now, they may look good on the surface. There are people sitting in pews on Sunday morning who clean up well. Uh, the, the man may have a suit and tie on. The, a woman may be dressed in a very conservative, godly manner. They may be, have well-behaved children in Sunday school. But when they come into my office, they pull back the curtain, and I get to see the train wreck that their life really is. The pain, the sorrow, the guilt, the addiction the verbal violence, even the domestic violence that's going on in Christian homes. The issues of control and manipulation, power, sexual perversion. But you'd never know it to look at them. False religion and false teachers are really good at creating appearances, maintaining appearances. But as a pastoral counselor, I, I grieve daily at what I see and what I hear. And the reason I'm saying this to you today is because it's so very prevalent. And it's bound to affect you, even if it just glances your way. You, we cannot get away from it. It is so prevalent. This kind of false teaching, false Christianity, is so prevalent in America today that we none of us can escape it. They profess to know God, but by their works they deny him. Being detestable and disobedient, unfit for any good work. By their works they deny him. See, you have every right and even every moral obligation as a follower of Christ, to judge Christian leaders by their behavior, by their conduct, by their character, 
not by how good of a sermon they can deliver, not by how charming they can be, not by how entertaining they are when they give their sermons, not by their abundance of credentials, not by how many books they've sold, not by how popular they are online. Your obligation is to judge them by their conduct and their character. And whether or not they're teaching in such a way that it produces the image of Christ in cooperation with the Holy Spirit in the lives of his hearers. So Paul goes on in chapter 2 of Titus to say this, But as for you, Titus, speak the things which are proper for sound doctrine. Isn't that wonderful? But as for you, speak the things which are proper for sound doctrine. And then he goes on to give advice to older men how they're to behave, older women how they're to behave, younger women, everyone. Younger men are to be sensible, he says in verse 6. Verse 7, he says, In all things show yourself, Titus, to be a model of good works with purity and doctrine dignified, sound in word, which is irreproachable, so that the opponent will be put to shame and have nothing bad to say about us. Credible. It can be. This is the glorious positive side of what I'm telling you today, is that it can happen. It can happen that you have a pastor, you have Christian leaders in your life who are actually devoted to sound doctrine, knowing that it's sound doctrine that produces sound living. So if you've been a wayward Christian, if you have stumbled repeatedly, if you have just not been able to get free from the habituating patterns of relational patterns and addictive patterns in your life since you've become a Christian, it is because you're not receiving sound teaching. That's the central cause. Nobody just becomes uh, a mature, well-equipped Christian overnight. Baptism doesn't accomplish that, folks. You can receive Christ. You can say hallelujah. You can submit to the waters of baptism. You can agree to start attending church on a regular basis and never grow an inch. You can become chronically immature and dull of hearing, both of which are incredibly dangerous statuses, states to be in. And then in chapter 2, verse 7 of Titus, he says this, In all things, the apostle constructs this here, In all things show yourself to be a model of good works, with purity and doctrine, dignified, sound in word, which is irreproachable, so that the opponent will be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about us. And he goes on, gives a little more practical advice, urge slaves to be subject to their own masters and everything, to be pleasing, not contradicting. The gospel does not support revolutions or rebellions, not pilfering, but demonstrating all good faith so that they will, be, they will adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in everything. See, it's godly living that is the greatest testimony, Christ-like 
godly living that is the greatest uh, instrument, force for change in unbelievers' lives as well, those with whom you come in contact. You can sit in the coffee shop and argue about whether someone should vote for this person or that person or bewail how rotten the country is and how these godless liberals are destroying this and destroying that and, or how the godless conservatives are, are doing this. You can get all into the political theater. You can get into psychology. You can get into philosophy. But none of it in the final analysis changes anyone. What changes people, what is the greatest evangelism tool is your own godly Christ-like living. Peter said it, didn't he? He said, be ready to give an account for the hope, a reason for the hope that is in you. So we're not just stuffing uh, the four laws little track into people's pockets. We're not just talking to them about Jesus. We're displaying Jesus to them. We're showing Jesus to them in our thoughts, in our word, in our deed, in how we treat them. And then he gives reasons for this in verses 11 through 14 through 15, and then I'll close with that. For the grace of God, he says in verse 11, chapter 2 of Titus, for the grace of God has appeared, meaning Jesus himself. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us that denying ungodliness, meaning we, 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 we treat it with disrepute, we have no, no time for it, denying it, we reject it, we say no to it, we identify it and we stay away from it, denying ungodliness and worldly desires, we should live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, and that he might redeem us from all lawlessness and purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good works, and then he concludes with this, Titus, these things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Jesus died for you. Jesus came into the world for you. Jesus lived to redeem your life. And he gave himself for you that he might redeem you, not just so you can go to heaven, Though heaven you will go. And not just to save you from staying out of hell, though out of hell you will stay, but to redeem you from all lawlessness and purify for you, purify you as part of a people, not just as individual only, but you are part of a people, a people that are his own possession, zealous for good works, works that reflect God's character works that are inspired and empowered by the Holy Spirit originate, in fact, in the work of the Spirit in your life. Nowhere does the New Testament teach that Christians just go around being do-gooders. 
Christians are doing good because they're being motivated by the Holy Spirit. Christians are holy because they have the Holy Spirit dwelling within them. These are the things that you ought to be hearing from your pulpits. These are the things you ought to be hearing from your Christian leaders. And if you're staying home and listening to celebrity preachers on TV or on the radio, these are the things you ought to be hearing if you expect that your life is going to start looking like Jesus. Remember, 1 John 2.6 tells us, 1 John 2.6, that anyone who says they are in him ought to live as he lived. Now there's a challenge for you. I care about how things affect you. I'm burdened for two things. I'm burdened for the honor and the glory of, the, of my Lord, Jesus Christ. The one who saved me when there was no way I could have saved myself. The one who pursued me when I was running in the wrong direction. The one who blocked off my exits when I was trying to run away and stood in front of me and received me when I felt so unworthy of his reception. I was the one sheep that he left the 99 to go find. I was the lost coin that he swept the floor until he found it. And so are you. Christ saved none of us because we were so worthy of it. He gets the glory and all the glory because he saved us because we were so unworthy of it. It says so much about his character. But it also says that no matter where we've gone, no matter what we've done, no matter how we failed, that his righteousness cancels out the debt. His atonement is sufficient. When he died for you, he died for your sins, past, present, and future. Christ did not come to give us a partial atonement. He did not come to make salvation merely possible. He died to secure your salvation and to secure you in that salvation and to seal you with his Holy Spirit so that you could grow into his likeness and become like him. Listen, we come to know Jesus. If we say, I know Jesus, then you ought to become like him. You ought to be in a state of ever-increasing conformity to his character, to his image. Because not only are we called to know him, we're called to know him in the most intimate fashion, and there's no way that you become more intimate with anyone than to become like them. In thought, word, and deed. He's called, he's come to share his life with you. Not just to give his life for you only, which is glorious in itself, but to share his life with you. To reveal his character in your character. So that we actually become the living body of Christ. So that people look at the church and they no longer see selfish ambition, greed, hypocrisy, sexual deviancy, 
so on and so on. What they see is Jesus himself. In his humility, in his anonymity, and in his unconditional obedience to the Father's will. That's what it means to be like Jesus. To take the, take the lower seat, to walk in humility before God, and to walk in unconditional obedience to the will, known will of God. Well, thanks for listening. What I want to tell you today and what I've told you today is that if you have been a wayward Christian, if you have a, a, a backlog of regrets and sorrows that you carry about because of your failures as a Christian, your waywardness, your stumblings, remember that while you are indeed morally responsible for your actions and your behaviors, there is a cause. And what I'm saying to you today, I want you to write it down, please, is that sound teaching precedes sound living. So if you have any zeal that you're going to exercise in the next 24 hours, make a high and holy resolve to pursue sound teaching. And that includes what you can get from Christian pastors and teachers and evangelists, but also, most importantly even, is to learn to read your Bible and to read it well within context and be devoted to understanding it. Get the study tools. Find somebody. Contact me at EncounterRecovery at gmail.com if you need some help, either pointing you towards somebody where some tools that you can learn so that you can learn to read your Bible well. Pick up a copy of Gordon Fee's book, How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth. You can start there. How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth by Gordon Fee. You can begin there. If you have never committed yourself to learning how to study and read and interpret and apply the Bible well, you can start today. You ultimately are responsible for the sound teaching in your life, not your preacher. He will be responsible. He will receive the greater judgment. But you're ultimately responsible for your own spiritual health. Well, enough said. Lord be with you and strengthen you in all goodness as you grow in the image of your Lord and Savior. Jesus Christ. Amen.